Let us pray together. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now words of comfort through this great psalm that your Holy Spirit inspired through your servant David. Father, may we cling to you. May we know you and your son as our life, as our source of joy and peace. Father, we thank you for these things and pray that your mercy would fall upon us. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we are looking at really what is the most famous psalm of them all. Uh, in fact, I think you could say this is probably the most famous piece of poetry uh, ever written. Maybe the most famous song lyrics ever written, if you want to look at it that way. It is the 23rd Psalm. This psalm is justly famous because of its beauty, because of the comfort it brings. It is probably best known uh, because it is used in so many funeral liturgies. But that's not just what it's about. It's not just for a, a time of comfort uh, say, after the passing of a loved one. And, and I would also say, just because this psalm is very familiar does not mean it's well understood. As we're going to see this morning, in reality, this is a wartime psalm. It is a psalm written from and for the battlefield. It's a wartime psalm. It's a psalm really for times of crisis. And that makes this psalm especially fitting for our time, the time in which we live, the time in which we find ourselves right now. We live in a time of great crisis. Does anybody doubt that? It's obvious we live in a time of great upheaval and uncertainty. Uh, at home, we have the virus, and we have the way the government and the economy and businesses have responded to the virus. As we look at things uh, here domestically, we find we have very foolish leadership in all kinds of high places, uh, we have racial unrest. We, we have uh, cities that are full of crime and violence. Then you look abroad, and you find the picture is just as bleak. We've seen our nation utterly humiliated by incompetence in Afghanistan. Uh, we see uh, global uh, powers that seem to be gaining in strength and taking advantage of our perceived weakness. The world is becoming a more and more dangerous place. You can just sense it. You can feel it in the air. The time we live in is supercharged with anxiety, with fear. You can just feel it. But there is an answer to that anxiety and fear. The answer is found here in Psalm 23. What can Psalm 23 do for you? Well, think of it this way, and I'm, I don't understand electricity really well. If some of you understand it better than me, you can correct the way I use this illustration, but still want to use it. An electrical circuit, you know, think about an electrical circuit, transformers within that circuit can step up or step down the charge that runs through them. Voltage goes into the transformer, and, and the transformer can increase or decrease that voltage. So typically, as I understand, power is trans transported from the power company at 11,000 volts. But to come into your house safely, to be able to, to, to use that electricity safely in your house, it has to be decreased to 110 volts. Otherwise, it'll zap all the appliances in your house and do who knows, who knows what else. And so that's what transformers do. They can step down that voltage. But transformers can also step up the voltage. They can step up the current. Two different ways transformers can work. 
And we got two different kinds of people and two different ways of responding to stress. Some people are like a step-up transformer. There's a charge of stress, a charge of anxiety flowing through the culture, flowing through society, and they are so reactive, so anxious, they intensify it, they step it up. They catastrophize anything and everything. They focus on the worst possible outcome. They accentuate the negatives, the, the risks, the dangers, all that could go wrong. That becomes the lens through which they view the world. And so they become evangelists of fear. Spreading their fear and their anxiety. It's like their anxieties become contagious and, and they spread them to other people. Catastrophizing becomes a habit of the heart. Fear becomes a state of mind. You supercharge the anxieties of the moment. The motto of this kind of person is no situation is so bad that it can't be made worse. It probably will get worse. But there's another way to be a transformer, and that's to be a step-down transformer, to step down the charge, to take that 11,000 volts that are coming in and to step that down to a very safe and usable 110 volts. But how do you do that? Well, I would argue this is exactly what Psalm 23 is about. It is a step-down transformer for all of life. This is what David is doing in the 23rd Psalm. It gives you a different kind of lens to view the world through. Yes, life is full of stresses. Yes, we see all kinds of, of fearful, scary things in the world. But if you look at the stresses of your life and the calamities going on in the world around you through the lens of this Psalm, you will be able to live a joyful, confident life, no matter what happens, you'll be able to live with poise, you'll be happier, you'll make far better decisions, you'll be a much more decisive decision maker, you'll spread joy instead of fear to others, you will be a better parent, leader, employee, if you look at life through the lens of Psalm 23. So look at the virus through the lens of Psalm 23. Uh, look at the situation in Afghanistan and look at the economy through the lens of Psalm 23. Look at the trials and travails and struggles of your own life through the lens of Psalm 23. So what does Psalm 23 teach us? How does Psalm 23 reduce the charge in those high voltage, high pressure, high stress situations. Well, it all starts with that metaphor we're given in verse 1. This is really the master metaphor that controls the whole psalm. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, obviously, if we can say the Lord is my shepherd, that means we are sheep. And so the two things you have to understand to grasp this psalm are shepherds and sheep. I saw somebody the other day say that um, if you had one year to study the Bible, you know, one year to really seek to, to master the scriptures, you should spend the first six months studying farming practices and livestock because so much of scripture's imagery is drawn from agrarian life. And we understand it so little, most of us, in our modern world. Now, I think that's probably a bit of an exaggeration. I don't think you'd have to spend six months studying those things. But still, there, there, there's an element of truth there. The Bible's full of this kind of thing. Abel was a shepherd. Uh, Moses was a shepherd. Obviously, David was a shepherd. Priests and prophets, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, are called to be shepherds. And God says he will raise up shepherds for his people. Uh, elders in the church are called shepherds. It's important to understand this kind 
a thing. So let's, let's really start with this question. What are shepherds like? You've got to understand shepherds and sheep. Let's talk about shepherds for just a minute. What are shepherds like? And how is the Lord a shepherd to us? What does that mean? What is David really saying? Well, sometimes we probably have the wrong picture. We think of a shepherd just you know, lying down in the fields with a sheep and it's real you know, easy and you got these warm, fuzzy creatures you're surrounded with and it's kind of this very you know, pretty picture that we paint of being a shepherd. The reality is being a shepherd in the ancient Near East was not easy. In fact, it was very difficult and dangerous work. The shepherd had to protect and provide for the sheep. The shepherd had authority over the sheep and he had responsibility for the sheep. And a good shepherd loved his sheep and would do everything he could to care for them. David was a shepherd, as we know. So, of course, here he's speaking out of his own experience. In fact, David was doubly a shepherd. So so you can think of this psalm as a shepherd is praying to his shepherd. David was a shepherd as a young boy. We know he tended his father Jesse's sheep on their farm. And then as king, he became Israel's shepherd. That's how he's described. He becomes prince and shepherd over Israel. Kings in ancient Israel were called shepherds of the nation. Again and again, you find that in scripture. So what do shepherds do? Well, shepherds go to war on behalf of the sheep. They fight on behalf of the sheep. Remember when David wanted to fight Goliath? In 1 Samuel, Goliath is taunting the soldiers of Israel and nobody will stand up, nobody will man up to fight Goliath. And David hears about this when he goes to visit the the, the campsite, the battle site. And he goes to Saul and he wants to fight Goliath on behalf of the people. And Saul doesn't think he's going to be capable because he's so young and uh, of such small stature compared to Goliath. And David says to him, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him and killed him. Yes, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. The Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of Goliath. David has this confidence that he can fight Goliath because he's been fighting on behalf of his sheep, and he has defeated lions and bears, and so he can defeat Goliath. See, this is what shepherds do. They go to war for the sheep. They fight for the flock. The shepherd will even lay down his life for the sheep if need be. In Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. God is referred to as the shepherd of his people in many other places in Scripture. God's called the shepherd of Israel, the shepherd of his people. It's not just in Psalm 23. Uh, In Genesis 49, when uh, Jacob is pronouncing his final uh, blessings, he says, God has been my shepherd all my days. In Psalm 80, Asaph calls out to God as the shepherd of Israel who leads his flock. Again and again, you find this language. God is a shepherd of his people. And of course, Jesus picks up on this in John chapter 10, the passage we read this morning. He describes himself as the good shepherd. And what does it mean for him to be the good shepherd? Well, again, he's going to fight for the flock. He's going to protect the flock. He says he will lay down his life for the sheep. He'll run off the thieves. He'll take on the wolves to protect the sheep, to save his flock. Really, John 10 fulfills Psalm 23. It's the definitive fulfillment of Psalm 23. It reveals the full identity of this divine shepherd 
David is praying to in Jesus, the one true God, the creator and ruler over all, becomes our shepherd. The one who fights for us, the one who will lay down his life for us. All of our fears and anxieties stem from forgetting just this truth, this very truth. All of our fears and anxieties stem from forgetting that the Lord is our shepherd, that Jesus is our shepherd, that he will do whatever it takes. He has done whatever it takes to save and rescue his people because we are his flock, the people of his pasture. He loves us. He knows us by name. In fact, it's interesting to see how Psalm 23 fits together with the psalms that come right before and right after this psalm. Uh, And it's interesting because it it really gives us a different angle, a different perspective uh, that, that, that allows us to see another dimension of the meaning to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is linked to Psalm 22 right before it and Psalm 24 right after it. These three psalms are like links in a chain and there is a progression. And when you see that progression, you realize these psalms not only describe David's experience, they describe Jesus' experience. Jesus is not only the one we pray these psalms to, He also prayed these psalms for himself. Jesus prayed this psalm, Psalm 23, to his heavenly Father. Jesus prayed this psalm to his heavenly Father before we ever prayed it to him. Understand that. Psalm 23 is prayed by Jesus before it becomes a prayer to Jesus. And if you see how these three psalms really fit together, you can see that. Psalm 22 is very obviously about the cross. It opens with those words that Jesus spoke on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22 goes on to describe in excruciating detail the sufferings Jesus endured hanging on that tree. It is Jesus' own prayer from the depths of his despair. Jesus cry in the midst of his suffering as he's hanging on the cross. Skip ahead then to Psalm 24. What does Psalm 24 describe? It describes the ascension of Jesus into heaven. The king of glory entering into the gates of heaven. It celebrates his coronation as king. Jesus taking his seat at the Father's right hand as the King of glory. Then right in the middle, you've got Psalm 23. So what is Psalm 23? Psalm 23 is Jesus passing through the valley of the shadow of death. It's about what happens between Jesus' sufferings on the cross in Psalm 22 and his exaltation in heaven in Psalm 24. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 together describe the suffering, burial, and exaltation of Jesus. And this is what you need to understand. Because Jesus has suffered for us, he has become our shepherd who can rightfully rule over us, who rescues us. He brings us salvation. He brings us forgiveness. These psalms strung together show you the whole work of Christ on our behalf. And Psalm 23 really focuses on how this work fulfills everything that shepherding is about. How how Jesus, because he has suffered in this way, now can become our good shepherd because he has laid down his life for us in this way. And so now as our shepherd, he is our savior, defender, protector, and provider. Again, the one who fights for us, who rescues us, who rules us, all for our good. Or here's still another way to think about this. I've I've already alluded to some of this, but when we think about shepherding, when we think about the Lord as our shepherd, what does that mean? Well, again, I've made reference to this. 
kings in Israel are called shepherds. When David says that, uh, when he says, the, the Lord is my shepherd, he's really saying the Lord is my king who rules over me for my good, who rules me like a shepherd, like a good shepherd would take care of his sheep. Fathers are called shepherds. So this is another way of calling out to God as father. And of course, another word for shepherd, a word we use in English, is the word pastor. When David says the Lord is my shepherd, he's really saying the Lord is my pastor. Now, isn't that comforting to know the Lord pastors you through life's hardships? That's what it really means for the Lord to be your shepherd. Now, that's shepherding. Let's talk about sheep for just a minute. There are many passages, just as there there, there are many passages of Scripture that describe the Lord as our shepherd, so there are many passages that describe us as sheep. A lot of these passages say when God's people are in sin, it describes the the people as sheep needing a shepherd because the shepherd would correct them and regather them and rescue them from their enemies. It's really important to know that when Scripture describes us as sheep, it is not complimenting us. That's really true. Uh, and I think, I think we know this. In fact, there was a little clip of an interview that made the rounds over the last week or so of a CNN reporter interviewing a Trump supporter. So you can imagine how this is going to go, right? Uh, but the, so you got this woman who's being interviewed, you know, she's got like her Trump shirt on, and she's being interviewed by this guy from CNN, and, and she's talking about how, uh, you know, how she has stopped watching the news, and all she cares about is what God is doing Uh, through all of these trials that that are happening. And she says, God is about to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, if you know your Bible, she is echoing Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is the one who divides the sheep from the goats, the sheep who belong to him from the goats who do not. But then the CNN reporter sort of steps in and says, well, which are you? Are you a sheep or a goat? And she says, well, I'm a goat. I'm not a sheep because I'm not going to just do what they tell me. Okay, she obviously got confused. She got tangled up in her own metaphor. In Matthew 25, you want to be a sheep because the sheep are the ones who are saved and the goats are the ones who are condemned. But at the same time, we don't want to be sheep because we know what sheep are like. We know how dumb sheep are. There's probably not a dumber animal in the whole animal kingdom than sheep. Sheep will literally follow one another right off a cliff. You know, we talk about sheeple, you know, people who are sheep, and that's an insult, people who can't think for themselves. You know, all the stereotypes about sheep are true. You ever wonder why no sports team that I know of has ever used sheep as their mascot? You know, you got the Detroit Lions and the Chicago Bears, all these other animals that serve as mascots. Nobody names their team after the sheep. Why? Because of what sheep are like. Sheep are weak, they're needy, they're vulnerable, they're prone to wander from the flock, they are easy prey for other animals, they're pretty low down on the food chain, they need lots of care just to survive. Sheep need lots of care. Sheep really can't make it without the oversight of a shepherd. And so we've seen what it means to say the Lord is our shepherd, but now what does it mean for us to be sheep? Well, this is how we are. We are sheep-like, probably more, far more sheep-like than we'd want to admit. We need the loving rule and protection 
and provision of our shepherd. Without the loving rule, protection, and provision of our shepherd, we cannot survive. We can't survive. Sheep can't survive on their own. They have to have a shepherd. We can't survive. We we can't thrive. We can't flourish without the Lord as our shepherd. Well, what happens when we do have the Lord as our shepherd? What happens when we are part of his flock and when we trust the Lord as our shepherd? Well, we can look at the rest of this psalm to find out. And we find that those who trust the shepherd really do thrive. Even in times of great hardship, they can thrive and flourish. The Lord is my shepherd, David says, and so what comes right after that? I shall not want I shall not lack. It's interesting. This is one of many echoes of Israel's exodus experience in this psalm. This psalm has got a lot of connections with the exodus. I won't bring all of them out, but this is clearly one. In Deuteronomy 2, verse 7, as Moses is preaching to the people at the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he says, you lack nothing. And so here's the picture for you. What God did for the Israelites is they wandered through the wilderness. That's what the Lord, as your shepherd, will do. God took care of their needs as they wandered in the wilderness. God's going to take care of you as well. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This points not just to the shepherd as provider, but also to the contentment the sheep experience under his care. But to experience that contentment, you've got to really know and trust the Lord as your shepherd. If you don't have the Lord as your shepherd, if you're not trusting him as your shepherd to provide for you, you're always going to experience a sense of lack. You're always going to be in want. Something will be missing. Whatever you have, however much, whatever you have will never be enough. If you don't have the Lord as your shepherd, well, it's like when they asked John Rockefeller, you know, when he was the wealthiest man in the world, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. He couldn't say, I, I, I have no want, I have no lack. I just got to have a little bit more. See, left to ourselves, we are insatiable, unsatisfiable. Our hearts are restless till they find rest in the heavenly shepherd. You know, life can play tricks on us. Life sometimes plays tricks on us. We are terrible judges of what will actually make us happy. There's so many people who, you know, they buy the lottery ticket thinking if I get these winnings, it'll make me happy. And they've done studies on this. The vast majority of people who win huge sums of money through the lottery are actually worse off, you know, a year, two years, three years later than they were before the lottery. They got what they wanted and it destroyed them. We are so often terrible judges of what will actually make us happy. If you do not trust the Lord to shepherd you, you will always be miserable. You will always be discontent. You'll be discontent and miserable even if, maybe I should say, especially if you get what you thought you wanted. Sometimes there's nothing worse than getting what you wanted. If you know the Lord is your shepherd, then you can say, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have no want, I have no lack. God's going to provide for me just what I need. The psalm continues. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Or actually, that could be restful waters. Is, is really uh, the word there that describes the waters is the same word used in Psalm 95 to describe the promised land as a place of rest. The promised land was a a land of rest, and here you have waters of 
rest. Waters that bring rest. So, so this picture that you have in this verse is really, it's a picture of peace and provision and safety and rest and refreshment. You know, you can just picture it, you know, sheep peacefully munching away on the green grass, then going to get a cool drink of water from the brook while the shepherd is busy guarding the perimeter, looking out for thieves and wolves on the prowl to steal the sheep, to destroy the sheep. You got the sheep just relaxing, oblivious to many of the the threats that the shepherd is continually driving on. It's kind of like with, you know, with young children, we don't expect little children to stress out every month on how the bills are going to be paid. We just say that's not their concern. You know, we as parents with little kids, we don't try to tell them, okay, you know, we, we're, we're trying to make all the money work. You know, we don't want to run out of money before we run out of month kind of thing. We don't do that to our kids. We don't burden them with, with things they don't need to know about or be concerned about just yet. And really, that's the picture you have here. The sheep are just peacefully enjoying themselves in this green countryside with, the, with, the, with this river of life flowing through it. And they can do that. They can enjoy themselves because the shepherd is out there guarding them and defending them. That's the picture. The psalm continues. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so here there's a shift from physical provision to what we might call spiritual provision. See, the shepherd provides holistic care, not just green pastures and quiet waters to feed his flock, but he also restores the souls of his people as well. Spiritual needs are also being met. And David says he guides us in paths of righteousness. What is this righteousness? Well, it means that we are faithful to him. He guides us in the way of faithfulness. The shepherd's word and wisdom direct us. And all of this, David says, is for his own sake. He has tied his reputation to our well-being. This is God's great act of grace. When he enters into a covenant with his people, it means he has staked his reputation as the one and only God. He has staked his reputation as a loving, gracious, merciful, and faithful God, a promise-keeping God. He has staked his reputation to the guidance and salvation he gives to his people. What God does in your life, he does not just for your sake, but for his sake, for the sake of his name, to make his name great. It goes on, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Obviously, the life of a believer is not easy. The life of a sheep is is not going to always be easy. It's not just flowery beds of ease. There are trials and temptations. There are hardships that come. But this is what David is saying. We can endure those hardships because the shepherd is with us. We are never alone. We are never alone. The Christian life has highs and lows. But when you are in the lows, when you are in the valleys, he is with you. He passes through that valley with you. And here it's called the valley of the shadow of death. That language of of, of darkness or shadow that's used here, it's actually used more in the book of Job than anywhere else. You want to know what it looks like to go through a valley, the valley of the shadow of death? Read about Job's sufferings and all of Job's speeches about his sufferings. That's what it means to be in the valley. That's the kind of thing David is talking about. 
But notice also, David doesn't say it's death. He says it is the shadow of death we face. And this is because our great shepherd has already died and therefore defeated death for us. The decisive defeat of death has been accomplished. And so now we don't face death in all its fury. We don't face death as an unmitigated curse. We only face the shadow of death. It's like, imagine this, you know, imagine, uh, you know, you're standing on the uh, sidewalk of a busy street and a huge truck comes rambling down the street, okay? If you face the truck out in the middle of the street, it's just going to run you over and flatten you. But if you're standing on the sidewalk next to the truck, the sun behind the truck, it'll cast its shadow over you. The shadow of the truck will pass over you, but not the truck itself. Would you rather get hit by a truck or by its shadow? Would you rather the truck run over you or shadow run over you? That's what David is saying about death. This is how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, the shadow of a dog cannot bite, the shadow of a sword cannot kill, and the shadow of death cannot destroy us. We do not need to fear death because we're not facing death. We face only the shadow of death. And a shadow can't harm you. We have nothing to fear, not even death. And because of all this, David says, therefore, I will fear no evil. You need not fear evil. Now, what is David talking about here? What kind of evil? Well, uh, there's evil in your own life, the evil that you yourself produce and act out because you still have sinful inclinations, and there's evil out there in the world. And I think David is saying about both kinds of evil, you don't have to fear any of it. You don't have to fear evil in your own life. You don't have to fear your own evil because it's been forgiven. Nothing causes fear more than a bad conscience. And a bad conscience comes from doing bad things. People have a bad conscience. Usually they should have a bad conscience because they have done bad things and they know what they deserve because of what they've done. And their bad conscience makes them fearful. The guilty are scared of a rustling leaf as Leviticus puts it. But those who have been forgiven can live with confidence because they say, yes, I know I've done evil, but I know it's been forgiven. Yes, I have my sins and I continue to sin, but all of those sins have been dealt with. The good shepherd has taken away those sins because he's not only the good shepherd who leads me and guides me, he's also the Lamb of God who sacrificed himself for me, whose blood washes me clean, whose blood purchased me. So I fear no evil. I don't have to fear my own sins rising up to condemn me at the last day. They've been dealt with, but you also don't have to fear the evil out there in the world. Because God is with you. Because death has been defeated. You don't have to fear the evil out there in the world. And this is really good news. Because we're constantly inundated with bad news. Think about the way the news works today. I believe, I will, I will tell you straight out, I believe that much of our mainstream media today is flat out satanic. I'm not, that's not hyperbole. Or I'm not, I mean, I literally think that it is satanic. Not just because it's so often dishonest, not because it's so much propaganda, but it is demonic because, because the, the talking heads on TV and on the internet have become tools of Satan. 
Because they are preaching a message of fear. They are trying to catechize you in fear and anxiety to turn you away from the shepherd, to turn you away from Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, I think this is a quite successful strategy on Satan's part. Satan uses much of the news to keep people from trusting in Jesus, to get them distracted, to, to, to lead them to turn away from trusting in Jesus. The whole, what's the whole point of the news now? It's really not to inform you, it is to scare you. The whole point of the news now is not to inform you, it is to frighten you so you will live in fear. The news now is designed and packaged and marketed to step up your anxiety, to act like one of those step-up transformers and to supercharge the fear, to get the voltage so high that you can't handle it. It's all designed to keep you from trusting in God and to get you, therefore, to trust in their false God, which usually today is the state. Because that's what they want, to turn you away from the true God and to get you to trust in their false God. That's what they want. See, life without a shepherd is terrifying. Living life without a shepherd is terrifying. A sheep without a shepherd really is lost, really is vulnerable and weak. And if that's where you find yourself, a sheep without a shepherd, what are you going to do? You're going to look for an alternative, an alternative God, an alternative shepherd to take care of you. And that's what people do. That's what the news is trying to do. Drive a wedge between you and the Lord as your shepherd so you'll be willing to go follow some other shepherd, some other God. But there's a way out. There's a way out of this fear. You literally can't say with David, I will fear no evil. I will not fear what is on the news tonight. I will not fear the articles I see on the internet. I will not fear any of it because the Lord is my shepherd. If you live that way, you can live without fear. If you will trust the shepherd, only if you will trust the shepherd, can you live without fear. The world is a scary place, but you don't have to be scared. The world is a scary place, but you don't have to live scared. When fear and anxiety hit, what do you do? Do you magnify that anxiety by mixing it up with your own insecurities and weaknesses and then radiating that out to others? So others get caught up in your anxieties, others get caught up in your fears. Do you send it out? That's one way of dealing with it. Or when those fears and anxieties hit, do you send them up? Do you send them up to the Lord, casting your cares and your fears and your worries on the Lord? Because this is what the Good Shepherd is doing to us. He's coming to you and he's saying, I see you're carrying an awfully heavy load of anxiety. Why don't you take that backpack full of anxiety off and give it to me and let me carry it for you? That's what the Lord is saying to us. That's what he wants to do for us. And so we just need to take it off and hand it to him and say, here, you carry this. And he's happy to do so. David says the rod and staff are also part of this. The rod and staff bring comfort. They are important to the shepherd's work. And I think we can make a distinction here. The rod in scripture is used to smite enemies. The shepherd uses his rod to strike down enemies. In the book of Exodus, Moses uses his rod to smite the Egyptians until Pharaoh lets God's flock go free. It's the rod that parts the Red Sea and therefore drowns Pharaoh's army. 
This shepherd's rod is a weapon. In Psalm 2, Jesus uses his rod of iron to smash the rebellious nations. See, the shepherd's rod is on our side. And even when it's doing this work of bringing judgment in the world, that might make it look like chaos as he is shaking down the kingdoms of this world so that what cannot be shaken will remain. But we can be comforted in that. We can be comforted as the world passes through these great conflagrations and judgments because we know Jesus is the one in charge of it. And then there is the staff. There is the staff used to discipline and correct the sheep. Or we could say used to discipline and direct the sheep. And this too is a comfort because the the, the Lord, as a good father, disciplines those he loves. He disciplines his own children. That's what the staff is for, to kind of prod us in the right direction. See, if the rod protects you from predators, the staff protects you from you. It's his fatherly discipline and correction. The psalm goes on, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Yes, there are enemies. Again, this is a a, a psalm written from the battlefield, you could say. But we can still celebrate because the Lord prepares this feast for us. Now I'll give you an example of this kind of thing from current events. Think of all those churches that have felt great pressure, even now, to be shut down, to shut their doors, to not gather in person. Even though the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves to gather, the state is coming in and saying, no, you must not meet. Think about those churches that have said, you know what, we've just got to meet anyway. Jesus says to meet, Scripture says to meet, we're going to keep meeting, even though the state has tried to shut us down. Those churches have enemies trying to keep them from gathering. But what's going on? The Lord continues preparing a feast for them when they gather. In Los Angeles, the city tried to do everything they could to shut down Grace Community Church, you know, John MacArthur's church. They tried to do everything they could to shut it down. And the church finally sued the state. And I just saw this in the last week. Not only did they win and and secure the right to continue meeting, but they also got all their legal fees paid for. And so the next time Grace Community Church has the Lord's Supper, that will truly be a feast God has spread for his people in the presence of their enemies. There are always people circling around the church who hate the church, who hate Jesus, who hate God, who hate scripture, who hate the truth of God. The church always has enemies. What does God do week after week after week? He prepares a feast for his people in the presence of their enemies. And they can look on in in anger and and, and fury as we eat and drink in peace and in joy, knowing that the victory has been won, knowing that the victory is ours. The Lord's Supper is always a victory celebration. David goes on, he says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. These are pictures of glory the shepherd bestows upon his sheep. Oil in Psalm 104 makes man's face to shine. So man's face can radiate with the glory of God. It's a sign of joy and happiness and festivity. In fact, it's interesting. Anointing with oil in the Old Testament is especially for ordination to office. Uh, Anointing with oil in the New Testament is especially for healing from some sickness. And, And these are pictures of things that the Lord does for his people. The Lord has anointed us with oil. We're prophets, priests, and kings in union with Christ. He's anointed us with oil for healing. He promises ultimately to heal us. The ultimate healing will be the resurrection. 
And it's really the same with the cup. You know, some will say the cup is half empty. Some will say it's half full. David says it overflows. That's how he looks at life. His cup is continually overflowing. And that means God has filled him to overflowing with his blessing. It means God has given you so much blessing, you can't contain it all. It spills over. There's more than enough for you to share. You can take some of the blessing, some of the bounty God has poured out on you and share it with others. Whatever kind of blessing you want to think of, whether that's physical provision or spiritual, whatever it may be, your cup is overflowing. God has given you enough and more than enough. You've got something to share with others. Finally, then David says, surely... Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think when we're reading through Scripture, one thing that can really help, you have to do some study to to get this, but when you look at the, the specific words that are used, if you come to understand better the range of meaning, the, the scope of meaning that word can have, and if you look at other examples of how it is used in Scripture, it can really enrich your Bible reading. It's like going from reading the Bible in black and white to, 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 to vivid color, or reading the Bible in two dimensions to really reading it in, in three dimensions. It just makes the Bible come alive. And so it is here. You know, when, when David speaks of mercy, goodness and mercy, that word mercy is the word hesed in Hebrew. Hesed is one of those words that you just can't capture. I mean, mercy just doesn't do it justice. Uh, some translations will say it is the Lord's covenant faithfulness or, or, or the Lord's covenant uh, kindness or his loving kindness. It's almost like it takes a whole dictionary to capture what is in this word. And note this too, that word for follow, again, that's, I mean, that is what it means, but it's kind of a, a weekend form of what it means. It really means it pursues God's mercy and goodness, his covenant faithfulness and loving kindness, pursue us. His goodness and mercy and covenant faithfulness are chasing after us. The same word actually for follow here is used at times when enemies follow after God's people. David was often a hunted man. He often was pursued by enemies who were out to kill him. But he can say all throughout his life, it's really God's covenant love in hot pursuit of him. It's really God's covenant love coming after him, seeking after him for his good. Enemies may be chasing after him, but it's God's mercy that's going to catch him, that's going to overtake him. And this is just how it is in our life as well. In Psalm 23, we find not only does the Lord go before us to lead us, but also God in his mercy and goodness follows after us. He goes before us, he comes behind us, pursuing us. It means we are surrounded by the loving and merciful presence of our God. He goes before us to lead our way. He comes after us as our rear God. We are always and everywhere protected by our God. The psalm opens saying, God is the Lord is my shepherd. And it ends with the Lord's mercy and loving kindness coming after us. If God is your shepherd, If the good shepherd is for you, who can be against you? If the good shepherd is for you, who can be against you? If the good shepherd is with you, salvation and victory are assured. And that's what you see in the way this psalm comes to its conclusion. The psalm ends with David dwelling in God's house forever. And this is interesting because when David, during his lifetime, there was no house of God in Israel. The tabernacle had been dismantled. The temple had not yet been built. So what does David mean by God's 
house. Well, David is confident that he will dwell with God and in God's presence forever. David Paulison has written what he calls the anti-Psalm 23, where he basically takes Psalm 23 and he turns it into its opposite. You know, what happens if you take away the good shepherd? Then what, what is life like? Well, all those good things described here, you get just the opposite. Listen to this. This is the anti-Psalm. Anti-Psalm 23. And you can see how each line of this really contrasts with what David says. Anti-Psalm 23. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me alone. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me, except me. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. And then I die. There are two ways to live. Two ways to look at life. Two ways to live your life. I ask you, what's it going to be? Psalm 23 or anti-Psalm 23? If you live by the anti-Psalm, you will find the idols you turn to do not comfort you. And the things you turn to to numb the pain, the alcohol, the the, the pornography, the drugs, the Netflix binging, none of those things bring you comfort. None of those things bring you peace. They do not work. But if you turn to the Lord as your shepherd, what happens? You find comfort. Comfort that lasts. You find safe passageway through this world. You find these things by knowing the Lord as your shepherd. As you follow him, his mercy follows you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.